conviction drove the nail through Luther's 95 Thesis 500 years ago. A conviction that could not be absent of action, could not remain silent, could not shrink back in the face of colossal opposition. Martin Luther knew there were eternal consequences at stake if he should allow fear to paralyze him. Moved by the Holy Spirit, in a zeal for God's word, he struck the blow that would seek to bring the gospel back to the revelation of the scriptures, back to its proper place within the church, and ultimately back to the people whom it had been taken from. The reformers sought to faithfully bring worship back to God's people through word, sacrament, and song, standing upon five principles to guide them in their pursuits. The five solas were their guideposts, and the revelation of the scriptures were the bedrock on which they stood. Now, 500 years later, we have to hold fast to the convictions of the reformers as we find ourselves in a place and time where the gospel is again at risk to be lost. The five solas of the Reformation must continue to guide us in a culture where truth and sound doctrine are being swept away by the waves of modern anthems. We must place our feet upon such a firm foundation of God's word that we can declare with Luther, Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Here I stand, 500 years of reformation. Alrighty, kia ora. We are in the last of our series in the Reformation, 500 years ago, a few weeks back, uh, was that uh, the anniversary of, of Martin Luther, uh, Augustinian monk, walking up to the church door of his local village in Wittenberg and nailing these statements on the wall that really most historians stay kick-started what we now call the Protestant Reformation. And so for these last uh, five or six weeks, we've been doing this series celebrating this incredibly important anniversary in terms of our church history. And we walked through the story of Luther and explained uh, where this came about and why this was so important in recovering the good news, the message of salvation in Christ. And that's why we kick-started. And then over the last few weeks, we've been walking through what are called the five solas, um, the five core foundational theological stones that Protestant theology is built on. And we've walked through these first four, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola gratia, sola fide. And today we end this little series uh, that we're doing by looking at the final sola, sola deo gloria, which means God's glory alone. And today I want to anchor us in a what I think is one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible, uh, talking about the glory of God. So if you've got a Bible with you, either a paper one or an app on a phone or an iPad or whatever it is, I'd love you to come with me to the, to the book of Romans, where we were last week, but this time we are at the end of chapter 11. So in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. While you're looking there, I want to try and put these five solas into a little bit of perspective for us. I said last week, while we're walking through each of these one by one, the reformers would say quite strongly, these five doctrines fit together. You don't have one without the others. Um, and that was especially true, as we saw last week, of sola fide, faith alone, because it's not faith that saves. It is faith 
in Jesus that saves because it's the object of the faith that is so incredibly important. And I was talking about the deck that were built at home, and if that had been a pretty shoddy workmanship, it wouldn't matter how much faith I had in my workmanship. If I'd stepped out on a deck that was poorly built, it would have come down regardless of how much faith. So it's not faith alone, it is faith in Christ alone. The reality is that all five of these go together, and it's helpful to understand how they go together to understand this last one that we're looking at today. So I want to kind of put them together for us um, this way with the shape of a cross. We began the five solas with sola scriptura, or, or God's word alone, which means that the Bible is our sole authority, our final authority. It doesn't mean that the creeds are important, that the teaching of the church historically is important, than what theologians in the past have said isn't important. We want to tap into all of that. But at the end of the day, we judge what they have said based on the Bible, because the Bible is our final authority. So that's the foundation, that's the ground of these. And then the second one we looked at was Sola Christus, which I said for that, Jesus Christ is the heart of this. And uh, J.I. Packer, the theologian, I quoted from him saying that really Christology, the understanding of who Jesus is, is the hub of the whole wheel, that all the rest of theology revolves around the person of Jesus. And then our salvation is those three in the middle together. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is the sole way we're saved. We don't contribute by our good works. We don't contribute by our merit. We don't contribute by our sacraments. It's not God infusing us with his grace, like giving us a red bull to help us have enough energy to obey him. It's all by grace alone. It is through our faith alone, which doesn't contribute to salvation, that simply receives what he's given, and that faith is in Christ alone because he is our sole mediator between a holy God and a sinful humanity. And so the reformers would say that is the message of the Bible. That is the good news, that we believe on the basis of Scripture alone, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if that is true, they said then all of the glory goes to God alone. So the, this final statement we're up to today, sola deo gloria, is the crown on which, it kind of the capstone, which is the inevitable outcome of all of this. If it really is scripture alone and not uh, humanity's teachings and wisdom, if it's grace alone and not our efforts and merits, if it's Christ alone and not a priest or a pope or Mary or saints, if it's faith alone and our faith is not a contributing faith but simply receives the gift of righteousness that God offers, then we don't get any credit and God gets all the credit. Interestingly enough, this is the one solar that the Catholic Church doesn't deny. The Catholic Church has come out quite deliberately in disagreement with the rest of the solas, disagreeing with what the what Protestant reformers stood for. But the Catholic Church is very happy to endorse the last solar, to the glory of God alone. But the reformers turned around and said, yeah, that's great, but you probably can't actually say that logically. Because if you're contributing to your faith and, and that the teachings of the Pope stand alongside the revelation of, Jesus, of, of God in the Bible, and if it's, if it's Christ alone, but it's also Mary and the saints, then at the end of the day, God doesn't get all the glory because we get a little bit of the credit along the way. And so for the reformers, if the rest of the soul is a true, then this fifth one is inevitable. 
that all of the glory goes to God alone forever and ever for what he's done. And that's where Paul is going to take us in this beautiful little passage in Romans chapter 11. This comes at a core point in this letter that he has written to the church at Rome. He's been describing for 11 chapters the message that he preaches, the good news um, that comes through Jesus. And he's explained uh, the problem we have of sin in the, in the first three chapters that creates this great chasm between God and us. And then he talks about this amazing gift that God offers us that we looked at last week, that he offers us his righteousness as a gift which we accept solely by faith in Jesus. And that's kind of his grace bridges this chasm. And he talks about the freedom that we have in chapters 5 through to 8 and all of the things that a relationship by grace gives to us that we never deserved and we can't earn, but God just gives us. And then in chapters 9 through 11, he's talking about that God is the trustworthy bridge builder. So he's taken 11 chapters to outline in quite deep ways the wonder of salvation. And then in the end of the chapter, he's about to launch into a so what, into a therefore, this is how you need to live. But before he gets to the therefore, It's as though he pushes himself back from the desk and he falls to his knees in a hymn of praise. And this is the most probably a song that he wrote. Romans 11 verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen what we call a doxology and uh, an expression of praise to God for all that he has done. And he he makes this statement, he writes this song with three moves. The first move is in verses 33 to 35, where he says, praise be to God because God is the infinite God. And he describes three ways in particular that God's glory shines through this message of salvation. That's what he's saying in that first line of verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, and I don't exactly like the way the NIV translates this line, actually. It's not, the NIV's got the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's actually three attributes. He's saying, oh, the depth of the riches of God, and oh, the depths of the wisdom of God, and oh, the depths of the knowledge of God. He's describing how in awe he is, of God being able to come up with a way to save sinful human beings and still be just and to elect us and still give us free will. And he gets to the end of these massive theological descriptions and he goes, oh my goodness, God just blows my mind. He is so vast in his knowledge 
He is so incredibly unsearchable in his wisdom of how to sort this out and to save us and still be the holy and just God that he is. Oh, the depths of the riches of his grace, which is what I think his riches is talking about in the context of chapter 11. And then in the rest of 33 and 34 and 35, he kind of underlines the statement. And he does it this way. This is called a chiasm. It's a, like a mirroring kind of structure using um, kind of lines coming in on each other. It's called a chiasm because the Greek letter X is, a, is called key. So it's like an X kind of shape there. And so he starts at the beginning and said, oh, the depths of the riches of God, meaning his grace. And then he comes down in verse 35 to underline that and say, and who has ever given to God that God should repay? It's a quote from Job. And the answer is no one. No one can repay God. No one was owed anything by God. God has acted purely and simply out of the beauty of his own grace. Because he is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's just who he is. So he chooses to save us. He chooses to reach out to us. He chooses to to draw us into a relationship with him, not because we deserve it, but because he's a gracious God. And, And Paul just goes, oh my goodness, wow. And he says, wow to God's wisdom, which is unfathomable, which is the next attribute he praises in verse 33. And verse 34 is the underlining of that. It's a quote from Isaiah 40. Who's known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Again, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Who can figure out God's plans? No one. Who can plumb the depths of God's wisdom? No one. Who could have ever predicted what God would do? No one. Because God is the infinitely wise God and we are finite creatures trying to grapple at times with this infinite God who is simply beyond us. The third attribute then in this series in verse 33 is the the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And that knowledge of God is then underlined in those next couple of lines to make this chiasm. In verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, we can't predict what God will do. We can't follow exactly. We just, we just get our minds blown away. And Paul, having written some of, in Romans, some of the most profound writings in all of the scriptures, one of the most beautiful and exquisite descriptions of the grace of God, as he's written that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that this letter he is writing is actually Scripture and God's Word, he gets to this point where he just pushes himself back from the desk and goes, whoa! Isn't he awesome? Who could plumb the depths of this God? He is amazing. And he's echoing the words, I think, of Isaiah 55, whereas Isaiah uses the imagery of the vast height of who God is, uh, he's gone the other way and gone, who could plumb the depths of God? But it's the same idea. Isaiah said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and nor are your ways. My ways declares the Lord, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's all Paul's doing. Just stepping back for a minute and falling to his knees in worship. This God who is infinitely beyond us and whose plan of salvation should make us draw breath every time we consider it. But he doesn't stop there. 
having stopped and done his wow moment. It then leads him into the core part of the doxology, the actual praise of God in verse 36, where he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So not only he says, is God infinite in his grace and his knowledge and wisdom, but God alone is sovereign because he is the source of everything. He is the sustainer of everything. And he is the end goal and purpose of everything. That's what he's saying. Those little prepositions in verse 36 there are incredibly important. For from him, he says, are all things. In other words, everything comes from God. He's the source of it all. That's why Revelation 4 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created everything. And by your will, everything was created and has their being. From him are all things, and then through him are all things, Paul says. In other words, everything that is not only had its start in God, but continues because God overrules it all. So Paul writing in Colossians 1 about Jesus says, In him all things were created, through him and for him, and he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. The galaxies keep spinning, gravity keeps working, the, the world, the, the creation keeps functioning because God is in control. He not only st- starts it all off, but he maintains everything in his world, in his creation. But he's also the end of it all. He is the goal of everything. He is the reason for everything. Everything finds its purpose ultimately in him as well. Which is why Isaiah 43 will say, everyone is called by my name whom I created for my glory. And Paul says we are to praise God and we are to stand in awe of him and we are to go, wow, every time we think about what he's done for us. Because he's the one who starts it all and he's the one who continues it all and he is the one who finishes it all and is the goal of it all. He is everything. I love the way veteran uh, British pastor John Stott uh, explores and unpacks this passage. He writes these words. If we ask where all things come from in the beginning and still come from today, the answer has to be from God. And if we ask how all things come into being and remain in being, the answer is through God. And if we ask why everything came into being and where everything is going, Our answer must be for and to God. And then Stott says, God is the creator and the sustainer and the heir of everything. He is the alpha and the omega and every letter of the alphabet in between. It's all about him. I love that last line. He is the A and he is the Z and he is every letter in between. It's all about God. The one quibble I have with Stott and in fact most of the other commentators who write in this passage, is when they talk about God being the source and the sustainer and the heir or the the reason of all things, they link it back to creation, that God is the, the one who created everything and he's the one who sustains all of his creation and all of his creation is for him. That's exactly what those verses say that I just read. And that's very true. But I don't think it's creation that Paul is talking about in Romans 11, 36. It's not creation, it's our salvation that he's talking about. 
In the context of Romans, he has spent 11 chapters talking about the wonder of what God's grace has done for us. And he has just finished in the previous three verses going, wow, the depths of God's grace and the depths of God's wisdom and the depths of God's knowledge. And then in verse 36, I think he's talking about the whole salvation story, that God is the one who starts salvation by his grace. And God is the one who continues us in relationship with him all by his grace. And God is the one who will receive all of the glory in his grace when he takes us to be with him forever, solely by grace. So while it's true that he is the creator and sustainer and goal of everything in creation, I think in particular here, Paul is saying he is the creator and sustainer and the goal of the whole salvation story. It's exactly what Jerry Bridges wrote in the quote that I used a couple of weeks ago on grace alone. We are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified and made holy and transformed by grace. We receive blessings by grace. We're motivated to obedience by grace. We're called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. If that is true, therefore, Paul will say. If it's a wow because of the depths of his grace and his wisdom and his knowledge, and if our whole salvation story starts from him and is sustained by him and ends on him, therefore, the last line of verse 36 says, therefore, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If God alone is infinite in his grace and his wisdom and his knowledge in coming up and executing this plan of salvation, and if he is the one who starts it all and sustains it all and ends it all and he's the goal of it all, then he and he alone is worthy of all of the praise and all of the worship and all of the honour and all of the glory for the whole shebang. That is why the reformers said, if the other four solas are true, there is an inevitable fifth one because you're forced to say, Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. And that really became the rallying cry of the Reformation that God and God alone is worthy of it all. We haven't done anything. Our works don't merit salvation. Our faith does not contribute. It simply receives. We can't earn our way to God. It's all of God, which means that he and he alone is worthy of all the glory. And that's the the cry of the Bible from beginning to end. Psalm 115 says, Not to us, Lord Not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. The angels will sing in in Revelation 5, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive all of the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the strength and the honor and the glory and the praise. God and God alone. If he's done it all, if it really is scripture alone and Christ alone and grace alone and faith alone, then it's to his glory alone. And we don't feature, we don't get in the way, we don't try and take a snippet of his glory, we just give it all to him because he and he alone is worthy. What that means then is that our lives are to be all about giving him glory. If we are saved totally by his grace, if it's all through what Jesus has done, if we simply receive this gift by faith, if it is all by God from beginning to end, then we surely are forced to respond back and live the rest of our lives to bring more honour and more glory and more acknowledgement of the wonder of God. And that's exactly where Paul goes in the next couple of verses. If you're still in Romans 11, have a look at verses 37 and 38. Oh, there are no verses 37 and 38. In our Bibles, they're the next chapter. So if you're in your phone, just hit the arrow button to go to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I have no argument with the chapter division, by the way. It's in exactly the right place because verse 1 of Romans 12 begins a whole new section. But what we miss by the chapter being there is we miss the flow of thought. So let me read Romans 12, 1 and 2, but let me start in verse 36. For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your, I think, logical expression of worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Basically what Paul does here is he moves into this next section, the, the, the so what part of his letter, by coming out of the doxology. If God and God alone is worthy of all glory, then we had better live our lives for his glory. How do you do that? He tells us two ways as he starts this section off. We glorify God by living lives of all-encompassing worship, of our whole life being worship. And we glorify God by living lives of transformed holiness. It's verse 1 and then verse 2. We don't have time to unpack these verses. But I want to go after just one little statement. One little line in the middle of verse 1. The response that Paul calls for that I'm calling all-encompassing worship. He says, this is what I urge you to do. If God and God alone is worthy of all glory, I urge you, offer your bodies, as a living sacrifice. Paul is diving back into the Old Testament story where the people of God in, in, in the nation of Israel would worship God by bringing sacrifices. They would come to a special place, uh, a temple, or before that, the, the portable tabernacle. 
And you would drag to worship God, you'd drag with you a lamb or a goat, or you'd bring the first fruits of your harvest. And you'd bring it to the tabernacle and temple, and you would give it to the priest. And the priest would offer it on the altar there as your offering to God. Paul is picking up that language, but he is dramatically changing the picture. And in this verse, he changes it in three dramatic ways. First of all, there's no priest. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you're the priest. You're not told to bring the offering and give it to the priest to offer. You're told to offer it. So you and I now in Jesus, we're priests. The second thing is, we're not only the priests, we're also the offering. God's not interested in you dragging a lamb in here this morning. Please do not bring a goat to church. It's never good. What God wants you to bring is yourself. So you're the priest, and you're now the offering. He wants you to place your life in response to his glory, your life on the altar. But, now this is the good news, you're not to slit your own throat. Because the third difference is this offering will not die on the altar, which is how it worked. You were to be an offering that is alive, a living sacrifice. What Paul is talking about is saying what they used to do in the Old Testament, we do that today, but now we do it. We have access directly to God through Jesus. And we bring our lives to him. But our living lives, we bring ourselves, you know, kicking, alive and kicking to God. And it's our whole life that is now the offering to him. Peter said exactly the same thing in his letter. As you come to him, the living stone, which is Jesus rejected by humans but chosen of God, you also like living stones, which is where we get the name of our church network from, by the way, you also, you're like a living stone being built into a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. He's picking up the whole system from the Old Testament and completely revolutionizing it. Now we don't go to a temple. We are the temple as the church. And you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're now part of his new temple where he is worshipped around the world, not in a special place. And you don't need to go to a priest. You're a priest if you're a follower of Jesus. You have direct access to God, and now we offer spiritual sacrifices. Everything we do in life can be part of our worship to God. The Reformers called this the priesthood of all believers. And it became a massive part of their understanding of what it meant to now live life for the glory of God. Luther would write, we are all priests as he is the high priest. We are all sons and daughters as he is the one and only son. We are all kings who rule with him under the king of kings. What that means, Luther and the other reformers said, there's no hierarchy in the church and there's no special division between excuse me, but the unwashed masses, which is what you are, and me. <laughs> and Luther said, there's no difference. What the Catholic Church would call clergy and laity, 
the reformers said, no. We're all priests. We all access God. We all get to bring him our lives and honour him with our lives as living sacrifices. What did that mean practically? Uh, One theologian I've been reading this week put it this way. Whereas the church had been considered the only arena for a life of perfect holiness, reserved for those who had a vocation, a special calling to be a priest, a monk, or a nun, Luther insisted that the other estates are likewise realms of vocation and holiness. Little bit technical. What he's saying is in the Catholic Church, there was a sacrament called holy orders. And priests and monks and nuns received a special calling from God. The Latin word for calling is vocation. So if you were called by God to be a nun or a monk or a priest, you were you were just more special than everyone else. There's no other way of putting it. And what Luther and the other reformers said is, there's no special calling. There's no special priest. In fact, that you won't find my role being titled priest in any Protestant church. It's a pastor or a minister or a vicar or a reverend or a captain if you're in the Salvation Army. Not priest. Because all of us are priests. All of us come to God. And there's no special calling to be a pastor. There are all these different, what Luther called, estates that we are called to, to honour God. In fact, Luther would talk about four estates. He would talk about we're all called to function in the church. Some are called to be pastors. Others are called to lead in other ways. Others are called to serve in different ways. But everyone who is called to be part of the church has a special role to play. So for Luther, whether you're the pastor and hold an office of the church, or whether you look after two- and three-year-olds as a volunteer in the creche, both of those are of the same dignity. And both of those bring God glory. It's not only in the church. It's the household. That's the second estate that he talked about. That means if you were called as a husband or a wife or a parent or a child or a servant, God's called you to that role. And not only in family relationships, but Luther would include in that your work. Because often your work flowed out of the family you were in, where, where sons would follow fathers into the same business and so on. But Luther would say, you're not just called to be a pastor if you're paid to do that. You're called to be a farmer or you're called to be a teacher. You're called to be a shopkeeper. You're called to be a craftsman. And you can honour God whatever vocation you're in because it's the calling of God for you. Thirdly, he said, there's the, there's the state. Some are called to be officials or judges or civil servants. All of us are called to be citizens of the country we're in. And we are to do that for the glory of God. And then he said, and there's the world what Luther called the common order of Christian love, which basically means God calls you to be a neighbour to whoever is in need. What Luther meant by this is that God calls us and places us into different spheres of life, and we are to bring him glory in each of those. And every single one of us are called. 
One of the big questions that people ask me today is, I don't know what God's calling me to do. I don't know where God wants me. Luther's response would be, he wants you right where you are, where you are. He's called you to the roles you are in. And if you do those roles to bring him glory, you're fulfilling your calling. So, for example, he would say, all fathers, fathers, all fathers and mothers, all fathers and mothers who regulate their households wisely and who bring up their children to the service of God are engaged in pure holiness, in a holy work and a holy order. You don't have to be a monk or a priest or a nun to take holy orders. If God has called you and gifted you with children and you are a mum or a dad, you are called to a holy order and a holy task. And Luther would say, when you do that well, you bring him glory. See, what Luther was saying, to put it into maybe words that might fit our world a bit better, is that we all wear different hats in life. So let's say you're a teenager, which means you're probably still living at home, so you're a child to your parents, even though you're growing up, you're still a child relating to mum and dad. You may well also have siblings, so you're not only a child, but you're a, a brother or sister. But you're probably still, let's say you're studying at high school, so you're also a student. And you may have a part-time job, so you're also an employee. And you've also probably got a circle of friends in and outside of school, maybe youth groups, so you're, you're a friend to those other people in your life. And you may be part of a, a netball team or a cricket team or a rugby team. So you wear all of these different hats in life. You're a, you're a child and you're a sibling and you're a student and you're a, a worker and you're a friend and, and you're a, a part of a team. What Luther would say and what the other reformers echoed is that you're called to, to each of those spheres. And whatever hat you're wearing at a particular moment in your day because it's not just Sundays we worship. Whatever hat you're wearing at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, or at nine o'clock in the morning on a Friday, whatever hat you happen to have on that moment, God's called you there. And he's placed you there. And he wants you to do a great job in that relationship and that sphere to honour him. So you're, if you're at home at that moment and you're wearing the child hat, and your parents ask you to unpack the dishwasher. I just thought I'd slip this one in. <laughs> then you do it joyfully as a way of honouring God. If you're sitting in an exam at school, you study and prepare for that exam, not only to try and get a great grade, but you actually do that to honour the God who gave you a brain. And if you're at work flipping burgers that afternoon and wearing that hat, you make great burgers to honour God. It's not the only motive. It's okay to want to study to get good grades. It's okay to, to unpack the dishwasher to also earn pocket money. It's okay to, to make good burgers because you want the boss not to fire you. That's fine. But the ultimate reason for everything that we do it's meant to bring glory and honour to God. 
See, all of life becomes worship. All of life becomes about giving glory to the one who is worthy of it all. That's why the writer to the Hebrews would say, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly confess his name. When you spend time in your devotions and word and prayer, you praise him. When we gather as a church and, and different ones lead us in prayer and we, we, we pray with them and say amen to that, that honors God. When we stand and lift our voices and sing, whether you, you can stay in tune or not, you honor God. But the writer to the Hebrews says, it's not only that. And don't forget, he says, doing good and sharing with others. Paul would describe his efforts to bring people to faith in Romans 15 as a sacrifice to God. And thanking the church at Philippi for their financial gifts, he would describe their financial giving as a fragrant offering. See, everything in life, not just what happens on a Sunday morning, becomes worship. Because no matter what sphere we're in, no matter what hat we're wearing at that moment, we live in that sphere to the glory of God. And we give it our very best. So Luther would say the idea that service to God should only have to do with a church altar and singing and reading and sacrifice and the like is without doubt the worst trick of the devil. He was quite prone to exaggeration. I think if you asked Luther, is that the absolute worst thing you've had to deal with? He'd probably say, actually, no, there were some other things that were worse. But he liked to exaggerate to get the point across. But I love this. The whole world, he wrote, could abound with service to the Lord. The whole world could abound with worship, not only in church, but in the home and in the kitchen and in the workshop and in the field. See, the reformers were capturing what Colossians 3 says. Whatever you do, whether it's in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That means when you finish writing the report at work, there'd be nothing wrong theologically, I don't know if you want to do it practically, but nothing wrong theologically to lift that to God in a minute. Say, God, this is for you. When you settle the kids down in a classroom as a teacher and get them on with their tasks, there's nothing wrong with lifting that book to God and pray, God, this is for you. When you stand at the change table and change that nappy and you... Maybe not do that. That probably isn't as good. Actually, it would be just as good. Because when you wear the hat as a mum or dad and you change the nappy of a baby that is made in the image of God and you care for that in love, you've just glorified God. See, all of life changes. And all it needs is the simple prayer and heart attitude the start of each day and through a day that says, God, whatever I do today, I want to do it well. And I want to do it for you because you are worthy of it all. God and God alone is worthy of all glory. So let's glorify him. Start of last year, at the very beginning of our Panorama series, talked about a composer, lived a couple of hundred years after Luther, called Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the greatest composers in history. Most of his compositions 
would be signed at the end this way. Soli Deo Gloria. Or sometimes with the simple initials, SDG. It was Bach's way of saying, when I make music, I make music for God. And interestingly enough, it was not only the pieces of music that Bach wrote to be used in church worship. It was also the pieces of music that were so-called secular. Because if the reformers are right, and it's all for the glory of God alone, and all of our lives are meant to be worship, if everything we do, every hat we wear, is all about honouring God by the way we do it, there is no sacred and secular. The most mundane, ordinary thing you do in your life can become an extraordinary act of worship in response to his glory. Stephen Nichols, a church historian, quotes Francis Schaeffer, a guy who lived in the 70s and 80s, who wrote, there are no little people. There are no little places. Nichols says, when we live life, when we live all of life for the glory of God, we are engaged in the most profound of activities. We are doing something that matters truly and ultimately in the service of the glory of God. There is nothing little at all. If God has done it all, if God by grace has accomplished our whole salvation, if he is the beginning and the middle and the end, all of the letters of the alphabet, and we are simply recipients of all he has done, then he is worthy of worship. And in his grace, he allows us to celebrate his worthiness and glorify him in the tiniest, little, most mundane things of our lives. Whatever you do this afternoon, whatever hat you wear tomorrow, wherever you are called this week, let's glorify him because he and he alone is worthy. As we finish this Reformation series this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want, to, I want to commit us to God. One of the dreams of the reformers was that the Reformation would never end. That the church would continually be reforming itself and keeping coming back to these truths and these reminders and these solas. And I want to pray for us as a church and for other churches like us that we would stay true to the souls. God, thank you. Thank you for the wonder of your grace. Thank you for the way that it shows and displays for all eternity the riches of your grace and your knowledge and your wisdom. Thank you that the more we contemplate what you have done for us, the more we realize that you started it all and your Uh, making it all happen now and you're going to complete it all. It is all about you. God, thank you for the way that the reformers recovered 
this good news. And as we said at the beginning of this series, we are incredibly grateful that we stand on their shoulders. Thank you that they were not perfect. Thank you for their flaws. Because their mistakes and their errors remind us that you used flawed people like us. Because we're certainly not perfect either. But we do long to be people who hold on to this message and live our lives in response to it. God, as we stand before you today as a church, we pray you would help us to continually reform according to your word. We pray you would help us continually come back to this gospel, this good news. We pray you would continually help us to be in awe of your grace. So with Paul, we push back from the desk often and say, wow, what a God. And we pray you would help us always to live lives that bring you glory. Because you and you alone are worthy of it all. In the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.